When I think of the American dream, one of the first things that come to mind is college. We're programmed to think of education as the great equalizer, the ultimate instrument of social mobility. We spend upwards of $200 billion a year on grants and loans for students, much of it in pursuit of this goal. But is a college degree worth what we're paying? Do the dollars we spend on higher education truly translate into economic opportunity? The answer to that question is complicated. For some students, the answer is clearly yes. Those who graduate from strong programs at reputable schools are more likely to be employed, have higher wages, and better job benefits. This is all the more true during economic crises. College graduates are faring better now and have fared better in previous recessions than their counterparts without a degree. But this doesn't apply to everyone. Nearly 40% of students who start a full-time four-year undergraduate program drop out. Dropout rates are even worse for part-time students, low-income students, and students from racial and ethnic minority groups. And because these students end up saddled with loan debt, without the benefit of increased income from a college degree, they often end up in a more fragile economic position than they were in before entering college. Racial and socioeconomic disparities in higher education are alarming. Students of color and students from low-income backgrounds are much less likely to attend schools that put them on the path to the middle class and are more likely to attend low-quality, for-profit schools or under-resourced institutions. Black graduates held more student loan debt than white graduates, and they're more than three times as likely to default within four years as white borrowers. So we're spending billions of dollars every year in higher education, chasing a dream that, for far too many, remains elusive. Our higher education system is clearly broken, but right now, it's impossible to fix. Why? Because we don't really know the source of the dysfunction, and we can't really get a handle on what it is that's broken. This is all for one reason, because we have no data. We have no way of evaluating basic questions, like whether the system is working, which schools deliver results for which communities, which are the top and bottom performers, what programs yield best results for students from specific at-risk groups. Shouldn't we have that information at our fingertips? Transparency sounds common sense, but in fact, it has many detractors. The pushback has come from Nod makes of bedfellows, predatory for-profits that prey on poor and at-risk people, expensive private institutions, even some nonprofits that want to keep their data under wraps. And yet, there's a lot we also don't know about transparency as a solution to accountability. We can assume that more information is better than less, but how will more data solve these problems? I'm Laura Arnold, and on today's Deep Dive, we'll explore how better data could be a tool to reform higher education, and we'll examine the powerful special interests that have long stood in the way of change. We have two guests on today's show. The first is Margaret Spellings. She was the Secretary of Education under President George W. Bush, and then went on to be President of the University of North Carolina. Margaret, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Let's dive right in. You spent a great deal of time wearing various government hats and also as a university president trying to get a handle on issues in higher education. Describe for us, if you can, what is the problem? Well, a number of them. And for starters, that like in healthcare, we don't have enough information in the hands of consumers that really tells accurately what is the value proposition that we're proffering in higher education, at what price, and to what end. Now, when you were Secretary of Education under President George W. Bush, you made data transparency one of your key efforts. 
How did you focus on that? Why did you focus on that for the outset? And tell us a bit about what you tried to do. It almost seems quaint now because that was many years ago, but I created a commission of higher education and public policy leaders, including former governors. And, you know, essentially the theory of action was, look, we spend lots of federal money on post-secondary education, frankly, much more than K-12 education. But we've really under-leveraged the policymaking. It's been all about financial supports, largely for needy students. What were our objectives in American higher education? What are we trying to do in terms of preparation of our workforce, research, and the like? And so I appointed this commission, and the essence of it was that they recommended that we better understand what our institutional missions are. We make it clear to our stakeholders and the public what those stated goals are, and we measure against them. You formed this commission. The commission came to some reasonable conclusions as to what data you needed to make those decisions. What did you encounter? Well, one of the things that we learned was that we don't have what is known in the trade as a unit record system, a way to track students from point A to point B as they travel through a multitude of institutions. We didn't have a complete picture. So I called for the creation of a unit record system so that we could have a better, clearer picture. And the Congress, in its wisdom, shut that down. And here we are today, many years hence, with that still murky, incomplete picture, which frankly doesn't allow some of our institutions like community colleges to get credit for the work that they're doing and who they're serving because they're not captured there. So you wanted to be able to track a student from the time she enrolled in a specific institution to the time that she either completed her education, transferred somewhere else, dropped out. You wanted to see what were the economic outcomes of that student. Did she get a job? Get a job? Did she not? Did she drop out of the workforce? How much did you pay for it, et cetera? How much did she pay for it? How much debt did she incur? You wanted a complete picture so that sometime in the future, you as Secretary of Education or people in your position could say, oh, this kind of program served this kind of student in this way. That's right. When Margaret tried to acquire that data, things got tough. There was pushback from a lot of different directions. It was what we sometimes call a bootleggers and Baptist coalition. For-profit schools, lead institutions, and even the American Civil Liberties Union all found reasons to oppose the collection of this data. It was obviously frustration and disappointment because the loser in that equation was the American taxpayer and ultimately American students who are frankly being underserved in our system today. They're paying a lot for something that may or may not have value in the marketplace, and they stay in debt for a long time. In Texas, there is more of an environment of data sharing. UT, for example, has a program called Seek UT, where there is information that is made available to potential students about the economic outcomes of certain majors, et cetera. It's limited, and so far, it only tracks people who are in Texas. Is that something that you, as president of the University of North Carolina system, is that something that appealed to you that you tried to replicate? Absolutely. I oversaw 17 different institutions. We asked them to set their goals. We developed a strategic plan 
that had a variety of indicators that essentially constituted a menu of things that our system valued. And I would say that in terms of governance, a unified statewide system allowed us to look at the role of the flagships, five HBCUs, many comprehensive universities, some of which started as teacher colleges, et cetera. So we allowed the institutions to choose what are their priorities and then measure against them, report that publicly. And we had a statewide system that did some of that assessment in a common way. More and more funding for university system comes from states than before than the federal government. States, of course, are constrained in their budgets and are allocating fewer and fewer resources, which means universities don't do the logical thing, what you and I would think is logical, which is optimize, but instead they raise tuition, which makes it even harder for people who are low income to access those resources. So if you're back in the Secretary of Education position and you're thinking about a federal system that balances all of these things, transparency, accountability, resource allocation questions, constrained resources, what are some guideposts for you? What are some guidelines that you think are important to anchor reforms on? I think I would ask, and frankly, many of these are, are really state issues. I would ask our state, how many PhDs in French literature do we need in our state? How many veterinary schools? How many this or that? And as a business model, we need to look at, can we afford all of that? And can we afford that much investment in graduate education at the expense of teacher preparation or nursing preparation? And these are just decisions. I'm not making value judgments, particularly at this moment. I'm just saying we don't have the facts about where do we spend our money. Right now, the incentives in higher education I'm not picking on PhDs in French literature. I'm just using it as an illustration. If you're running a program like that, you want to stay in business. And so you want to recruit more people to pursue a degree like that and to pursue it in post-secondary education. Now, what are the job prospects for PhDs in French literature? I don't know. But we ought to look at that and we ought to understand that. At some level, you don't care if you get paid for it, right? If you get funded for it. Because self-preservation is your motivator. And I get that. I'm not besmirching it. I'm just saying that's the way the model is built. Were you able to optimize when you were at UNC? Were you able to make those hard decisions about closing? You know, I think the thing that has been so interesting in COVID is that has forced some of this just because of the financial exigencies and the way that we're using technology. You can have a stellar French literature program and beam it out in more places. And so we'll see some consolidation around offerings, I think, so that we can better align resources because we know they're not infinite. You mentioned COVID could create an opportunity for some of these discussions. But broader than that, is there anything about this moment that gives you optimism that some of this will change? You know, what's interesting, Laura, is I think brand is becoming less and less important. I watched just a few weeks ago the documentary on the Varsity Blues, the academic scandal. And I think when people see that, they think, well, heck, I mean, I can go to Houston Community College and pay a whole lot less for a degree at one of those fancy institutions that will have credibility. I think people understand that the numbers that are being served often in our most elite institutions And what we see in the employer community, they want people with skills that can demonstrate those skills. They're not really that interested in what the label is. If that label is Harvard, if that label is Houston Community College, if that label is Western Governors University or fill in the blank, they want people who can demonstrate value. 
And so I think we're starting to see some of that that I think will be ultimately to the good of the student and our workforce needs. I'm sure you follow some of the many, many changes in higher ed at the federal level. There's been a lot of positive movement on the issue, really, even in the last hundred days or four months or so since President Biden took office. Does that give you hope that maybe we're on a different path? What gives me hope is that I think people understand the centrality of education, K-12 and post-secondary education, with the functioning of our country and the prominence and prosperity of our country. We in Texas talk about the oil and gas industry, financial technology, our location, our size, our diversity, and so on. Our number one asset is people. We're big, we're getting bigger, and we're diverse. And it is an amazing hand to play. This is obviously true of Texas, but it's true about the United States of America. And if and when we maximize that human potential fully, we're unstoppable. Thank you so much for spending time with us here on Deep Dive. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Laura. Margaret Spellings was Secretary of Education from 2005 to 2009. And then she was president at UNC from 2016 to 2019. In many ways, she started the fight for greater transparency. Amy Leighton is one of the people currently carrying that torch. She is the director of higher education with New America, a leading advocacy organization. Amy, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks. Glad to be here. I want to dive right into the sticking points in higher ed policy recently. We just talked to Margaret Spellings about her effort to increase transparency, and you're still fighting this fight. So explain to us, why is our higher education system so opaque? Well, when you say it like that, it's really depressing. It's what I'm here for, Amy. <laughs> I guess us too. Sadly, we're still fighting the fight that Secretary Spellings started in the early 2000s. I doubt she even thought she was starting a fight when she had the crazy idea to use already collected data to answer basic questions about how students were faring in and after college. So why are we still fighting this fight? Why is higher education so opaque? I mean, essentially, it's because the private higher education lobby and a powerful member of Congress are keeping it that way. So help me understand, what is it that you would like answered that we currently can't answer as a system? Yeah, so it's going to sound sort of crazy to people who aren't in this space, because in one way, it seems like we're awash in information, and we are, right? There are all sorts of things about colleges, and which college should you go to, and which college has the cutest co-eds, and which college does this, and which college does that. But there actually isn't really good comparable information out there about which colleges and which programs are doing right by which students. And by right, I mean which programs have really good outcomes in terms of students completing and being able to earn enough to pay down their debts. And which programs are doing a poor job at this? And which programs are doing a good job for white students and a poor job for black students? And we don't actually have this information. And students and families are making one of the most important and expensive decisions of their lives when they decide where to go to college. And oftentimes they're borrowing to pay for that education, and they don't have basic information about how likely it is that they're going to do well at a particular program, at a particular college, for a particular price. And that's what we want. There is information that is currently gathered by both schools and the federal government and state governments. What is that information? And is the problem that the information doesn't exist or is the problem that the information is siloed such that we can't really aggregate it in the way that we need? 
Yeah, so as with so many things, it's a silo problem. And it's more than a silo problem. It's siloed and there's a federal law that prohibits some of this information from being connected. So there was this law that was put in place that basically prohibits the Department of Information from connecting these data sources. And that's what we're trying to change so that we can do this basic thing, which is to count all students so that students can make better choices with more complete information. So where should they go to college? Where do they have the highest likelihood of completing an education? Where do they have the highest likelihood of obtaining a good job? Where do they have the highest likelihood of not incurring debt? That's the data that you're referring to. Is that right? Absolutely. And there are a few other points that are sort of in the weeds, but I think it's worth going into. So the federal government has official outcome measures, like a graduation rate, for example. But the problem is it only captures first-time, full-time students who started school in the fall. And that might sound like what we think of as your average college student, right? An 18-year-old fresh out of high school, mom and dad are footing the bill and they're going to college, they're living in a dorm. But that's not actually who most of today's college students are. A lot of today's college students are going to community colleges. They're attending part-time They are transferring to other schools. They are transferring from other schools. And some of them are starting in the spring. They're starting in the summer. They're trying to juggle work and life and family and go to school. And they're not this sort of typical, which isn't even the typical anymore, college student. And they're not being counted. And this is one of the big reasons that the community colleges are really pushing for greater transparency and to count all students is because when you look at the sort of official outcomes for community colleges, they look terrible, right? They have these terrible graduation rates in part because their students aren't being captured because they might not have finished community college before transferring to another college. They might have transferred to a community college. They might be going part-time. And so none of the community colleges students' successes are being recognized, and they want to change that, and we want to change that. One place students can find information to inform their decisions is called the College Scorecard. It's a freely available online resource that provides data on schools around the country. That data includes graduation rates, average salary of alumni, and the average annual cost of attending. It's a good start, but there are serious flaws in the way the data is collected. The data are profoundly misleading. So California Community College, the system is the largest in the country. There's 116 colleges. There's over 2 million students. It serves almost 50% Latino students. There's a lot of Black and Brown students. But when you go to the college scorecard and you look at the outcomes, you are likely to think that those outcomes are reflective of most of the students who are at the community colleges. They're not because the college scorecard only includes students who get federal financial aid. And that's a very specific term. It's not just any government money or any federal money. Three out of four community college students in California are not counted in the college scorecard. So when you're talking about a scorecard that really only captures 25% of students, it's really not reflective and it's misleading. So Amy, how did we get here? How is it that we have so much siloed information and an inability to use it in any practical way? Essentially, Secretary Spellings wanted to use her authority as Secretary of Education to bring greater transparency to higher education. Radical idea. 
Turns out it was radical. It was considered radical. So if you take a secretary who wants to do a lot, you take a powerful lobbying group who was the Private Higher Education Association, you combine these two and talk about executive overreach, and you talk about scary rhetoric around student privacy and following students from birth to death. It's a really easy sell to write a law that would prevent the Department of Education from connecting these already existing data to answer some basic questions. And that's exactly what happened. So certainly the external talking point was privacy, right? Yep. The argument was that this is student privacy, that you are intruding. We cannot have a system where the federal government intrudes on the privacy of students. And in fact, in fairness, it wasn't only Republicans who were opposed to this. The ACLU was opposed to this in concept. There's a visceral reaction against something like this by many people who are skeptical of government intrusion. So that was a big part of it. What do you think was really behind it? Why were some of these small nonprofits so reluctant to have their information tracked? What they said was they cared about student privacy. But what I really think they cared about protecting was institutional privacy. So a lot of these colleges would like to control the narrative that prospective students hear. So right now, in the absence of comparable data that any student can look at, They basically have to go with what the schools send them. And so if you're a really expensive college that may not have great outcomes, do you want your outcomes out there in the world? Or would you rather have prospective students read your glossy brochure, open up to the alumni spotlight page that basically highlights all of their successful alumni, and you're getting a sense that everyone's doing great, when in fact, huge numbers of the student population may actually not be doing well after they graduate. These colleges would rather control that narrative. So, Amy, let's talk about what's possible. The College Transparency Act, that is what's on the table now and, frankly, has been on the table for many years, sadly without success. Tell us what the act proposes to do and how that would lead to meaningful improvements. So, at the most basic level, the College Transparency Act would allow us to count all students, to understand which programs are doing well by students and which ones are not. It would help students, schools, and policymakers make informed decisions. And it would do that by undoing the ban that we've been talking about and by allowing these different, disparate, disconnected data sets to talk to one another, to put out privacy-protected aggregate information about college outcomes. And it would help students make a much more informed decision. It'll help college counselors and parents help students make better decisions. It'll help schools. It'll help schools make more informed decisions about their programs. What the College Transparency Act would do would be to allow schools to see, not at an individual level, they couldn't see the outcomes for me or for you, but if we were in a group together, if we were in a class together, in a cohort together, it could look at all of our outcomes and see, oh, yikes, all of the students from this program are making $12 an hour. And they're making $12 an hour for the first six months, a year out, five years out. That's a problem. This is not what we're trying to do. And as we know, economic reasons are the numbers one, two, and three reasons that students are going to college, right? They are looking to broaden their minds. They are looking to do all of those other things. But for the most part, they also want to have a good, solid middle-class life. They're not looking to get a college degree or a college credential and live in poverty. For the most part, that's not why they're going to college. 
And so this would help schools be able to create programming that meets their needs. And they could also market those afterwards and actually have it with better data. Because right now, schools are desperately trying to track down students who've left with all these surveys saying, hey, how are you doing? Are you happy with your job? Do you have a job? What are your wages? And they're not getting responses. And the responses they get really aren't representative. So there's students and then there's policymakers. Frankly, the federal government spends hundreds of billions of dollars a year in higher education in the form of federal financial aid, the GI Bill, tax credits, but it doesn't have a good sense of how students are faring after college. Policymakers might be interested to see if certain programs are saddling students with a ton of debt they can never repay because they're earning poverty level wages. It may be interested to know whether or not certain programs are failing black and brown students. But right now, without a basic level of transparency, policymakers are making policy in the dark. Now, the College Transparency Act is the best proposal that we have to open these data flows, to integrate data that we need in order to get people the information that we believe they need to make good decisions. This seems to be a pretty popular concept in Congress. The last Congress, the College Transparency Act had 37 co-sponsors in the Senate and 235 co-sponsors in the House. So it is one of the most bipartisan bills out there, but you cannot get it across the finish line or have not yet. Why is that? Yeah. So I feel like these are all very depressing questions. Yes. I don't mean to rub salt in a wound, but we collectively have not been able to get this across the finish line. And it's absurd because to your point, half of members of Congress supported this bill in the last session. I can't think of a single bill aside from a post office naming that is as popular as this. On the Senate side, I mean, you have far left to far right. You have Senator Warren all the way to Senator Hyde-Smith. But we do have a problem, and the problem is a very powerful member of Congress. Her name is Representative Virginia Fox, and she is the ranking member on the House and Labor Committee, and she's the one who authored the ban to begin with. This has been her baby, and she continues to block it. I will say, even though I'm crying as we're saying this, because it's absurd that we are still here, there has been so much movement on this. Back when I started working on this issue in 2011, folks said, this is a third rail, you can't touch it. Nobody will sign on to this. Nobody will go against Fox. And bit by bit, people started coming out against Fox. Not Republicans on her committee, but bit by bit, folks started. And then you had Republican committee members who would do it. Republican subcommittee chairs who would come out. And now... Yeah, now there's a lot of momentum. Yeah, exactly. There's a fair amount of momentum for the concept in general. And as a side note, we spend a lot of time at Arnold Ventures and on this podcast talking about the dysfunction in governance in the federal government. This is one example. One member of the minority party in the House is able to veto legislation backed by more than half of Congress and supported by members across the political spectrum. And we can't get this bill passed because of one person. But on the bright side, as you mentioned, we have seen a lot of momentum recently. In the first 100 days of President Biden's administration, we've seen huge moves in higher ed. Does that give you optimism? Does that give you a reason to think that we may actually be able to get this done in the near future? Yeah, I think there are a few things. I think in terms of the College Transparency Act, Virginia Fox is the cheese who stands alone right now, right? And momentum continues to grow, continues to grow. There are going to be other vehicles it's going to happen. It's a shame that it has taken this long, but it's going to happen. And I think in terms of the new administration, there's a ton that they are already doing and will do. So I think the values are there. I think the know-how is there. And now clock is ticking to get things done. Right. And the will is there. Well, we thank you so much for joining us and for all the work that you do. 
Thanks. Thanks for having me and for being interested in this work. This has been Deep Dive, a production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. To learn more about transparency in higher education and efforts to collect data that will make that possible, visit arnoldventures.org. I'm Laura Arnold. Thank you for listening.